Hi, welcome to Jot Notes, a podcast where we dive into the world of authors and books. My name is Jenna Green, um, a YA fantasy author, and with me is Miranda O, oh, a contemporary chiclet author. And she has the privilege and honor of introducing our guest for today. Hi, Miranda. Hello, hello. I am thrilled to introduce our guest today. And the reason I'm thrilled is, well, I'm, I'm thrilled for multiple reasons, but um, Robert J. Sawyer has been a author that has always stood dear to my heart since I got into the writing world. So I am super, super excited to have you on our show today. Now, Robert is a Canadian science fiction author with more than 20 titles in print. He has won the Nebula and Hugo Award and has given the Order of Canada, which is the highest honor given by the government of Canada. That is pretty spectacular. And his 24th novel is called The Oppenheimer Alternative. So welcome, welcome. We're we're thrilled and excited and overjoyed to have you <laughs> with us today. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Jenna. I'm thrilled to be here myself. Thank you. So I want to start where it began. Do you remember when and where your love of writing and science fiction began? Yes, and it actually began just before, moments before I read my first science fiction novel. My brother Peter had bought a novel, acquired it at a used bookstore or something, called Trouble on Titan by a man named Alan E. Nurse. It's pronounced Nurse, but spelled N-O-U-R-S-E. And ironically, he was a medical doctor, so he was Dr. Nurse. Uh, but <laughs> the book was a YA uh, science fiction novel uh, set on Titan, one of Saturn's moons, but it started before the book you got into it. There was an essay by Nurse or an introduction called I've Never Been There. And he talks in that as only a couple of pages about the joy of being a science fiction writer, how much fun it was to make up, uh, you know, plausible, reasonable extrapolation, but to uh, use his imagination to figure out what the future might be like. And I thought, well, that sounds like a lot of fun. And then I read his book and loved the book as well. I still remember it absolutely vividly, Trouble on Titan by Eleni Nurse. But it was because he said, you know, unlike the usual journey, which is you sort of discover reading. And then it sort of dawns on you that somebody must write these books. And then eventually you piece it together. Maybe I could write a book too. It's not like that. wasn't like that at all for me. It was before I'd even read a science fiction book. Somebody said, come on over. Water's fine. Dive in. This is going to be a lot of fun to work in this field. And so that I think I was 12 years old, but that was it. I was hooked. Um, obviously, I'm not a science fiction author, but the fantasy genre, they're similar in that world building, yes. um, you know, inventing and things. And 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 I remember when I took a children's lit class university, um, that's when I was exposed to the essays of Tolkien. Right before that, I only knew about, you know, his, his fiction writing, but some of his essays on world building, um, I found quite fascinating and a good basis for... Um, that idea of staying true to your world. Like you can invent pretty much whatever you want, at least in fantasy. Um, and then as long as you stick to it and you 
believe it. If you believe it, the audience will believe it. Well, that's right. Consistency absolutely matters. You know, we happen to be doing this podcast live on Facebook right now. It's being recorded, but it's being done on a Thursday night. And when this eve this is over, I'm going to go and watch the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery. Well, they've had a universe that they've been building since 1966 when Star Trek debuted. So right. 56, 50. Yeah, 56 years this year of Star Trek history under the belt. And what makes people stay in that universe is that it's a consistency, a breadth, a depth of world building, of creating a history that's true to its own rules. And when Star Trek fails, and it does from time to time, sometimes whole series have really not caught on, like Star Trek Enterprise from 20 years ago, in large measure because it contradicted what we had come to know and understand to be the Star Trek A, core values, and B, uh, history that had been put together. I, I never thought about it that way, and <clears throat> excuse me, and it is so true with fantasy and science fiction. I, I don't write in those genres, but they do fascinate me because there's a whole other component to building your story versus just write out your characters and, and the story that way. The whole world is a, is a, is a story in itself. Um, now, the world is a character in a lot of ways. Yeah, the world is a character. Sure. That's right. That's right. Sure. There's a reason the movie that's in theaters right now and, and based on the most famous science or the best selling science fiction novel of all time is called Dune. And not Moadib. Moadib is the name of the main character, Paul Atreides, another name he goes by. It's called Dune. The world is the main character in that book. The world Arrakis, also known as the planet Dune, uh, also known as the planet Canopus 3 for real SF fans. But yes. <laughs> so when you are creating these worlds, does it involve a lot of research, kind of comparing to what other science fiction worlds have been built? Like, what does a research for a new world look like for you? Well, most of my stuff is set in the near future of the present day on Earth. I have done the building of alien societies and alien worlds, but you don't do it by researching what other science fiction writers have done. You do it by researching the science. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I dig deeply into astronomy, geology, ecology. In fact, I mentioned Dune a moment ago. Dune is dedicated by Frank Herbert, the author who wrote the novel Dune. It's dedicated to the dry land ecologists who make deserts bloom. Uh, it's dedicated to the scientists who had studied what we could do with desolate desert land. And that's what his whole first novel and then the seven that he wrote and the Quite a few uh, others that his son, along with Kevin Anderson, have written. The three versions of the movie, they all come back to him knowing ecology and studying that field. Uh, so, yeah, we science fiction writers, uh, we take our research from real science. And that's where you should take it after yeah. I said it. And then you you said what you said. It makes most way it's, more you know, sense. That, I, I don't mean to interrupt, Miranda. I'm sorry. <laughs> and okay. it's the same as with a, a, a mystery writer. 
right. mystery writer doesn't go and say, I wonder how Agatha Christie, you know, <laughs> would have done this. They go and say, how would a modern CSI, crime scene investigator, right. how would a forensicist do this? How would the district attorney or here in Canada, the crown attorney, how would they approach making sure they had an airtight case in something like this? And so you're at a historical uh, writer reads history, you know, uh, and Tolkien, right? Tolkien, who was a great uh, scholar, uh, was a great scholar, of, uh, knew about the Middle Ages, knew about uh, history, and uh, had deeply researched the study of mythology. He hadn't just read myths, but had read about the study of myths, the study, the science of mythology, or the discipline of mythology. I used to say that I didn't do research. I was like, oh, I can't see. I make everything up. Um, I used to say I did reverse um, research when I wrote my sequel. I'd have to go back and remember what I'd made up. But I don't say that anymore because I realize that a lot of my ideas come from things I've read. I might not have been like setting down to like go and research, but um, and a lot of anthropology, like if you're yes. inventing cultures, Mm -hmm. um, they might be, you know, like fantastical beasts and stuff, but they have a culture. Yep. And even when you're describing their homes and what they eat, there's a lot of that study of culture in it that a naive former Jenna used to say, <laughs> research, but it is, I just, you know, but everyone has their own take to research, right? Some might sit down for five years. Right. Oh, indeed. Uh, for those who are watching on video over my shoulder, and I can never do it right mirrored, but there's a book somewhere over here. There it is. <laughs> the Oppenheimer Alternative, my latest novel. I spent two years doing full-time research for that novel. And it was largely historical research because it's about J. Robert Oppenheimer, the Manhattan Project, the birth of the atomic age, an alternate history novel about them. But to write alternate history, to write counterfactual history or, or history that uh, at least um, uh, fills in the blanks of things that we don't actually know about that period, you have to know that period. And I had to dive in and read uh, the biographies of all the main characters, Oppenheimer, Edward Teller, and uh, in some cases, the autobiographies for those who had written them. Oppenheimer never wrote one, but many of the characters did. The history of the period, the physics of nuclear uh, uh, weapons, uh, the politics uh, that came out of the nuclear age. Absolutely. Just immerse yourself in it as a writer. And you don't know what you're looking for necessarily. The, you know, a bad writer writes a log and says, okay, I put five X's in a row in my manuscript to remind me when I come back and do revisions, I have to look up what year the Battle of Hastings was. A good writer starts out by not knowing what they're looking for, but following their nose where the research leads them with a, a writer's keen sense of uh, what would be interesting to dramatize. You're looking for historical or scientific or even philosophical or psychological facts that you can say, yeah, I can see a story coming out of that. I can see a character getting their teeth into that. That's what research is all about. Man, I was going to ask you some tips on on how to research, and I feel like you just gave us a whole bunch of tips. But when I mean, obviously, there is a, a, a massive part of creating science fiction stories and worlds that real heavily relies on on research. So what are some things that you've learned over the years to help make the research process effective and efficient? 
Sure. Two years is a long time to dedicate a full absolutely, time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the first thing is to be fully willing to embrace your ignorance and say you don't know anything. I did a novel some years ago called Frame Shift, which was about genetics. And uh, at the time, I knew what a little bit I remembered from high school biology, but that was it. Uh, and so I got myself a book called The Cartoon Guide to Genetics. And started with that. Uh, and, you know, there's the cartoon guide to almost any topic you want to look for. Uh, there's the very short introduction series uh, from Oxford University Press, which is designed for beginners in any field to get your feet wet. Start with a beginning thing. Wikipedia is not a good place to start, uh, often because their articles can be very, very technical. Um and you go, oh, I don't understand, you know, this word, that word, whatever. Start with an absolute beginner's book. Uh, even sometimes a YA, uh, not a YA novel, but a, a book aimed at a young uh, middle grade audience. A perfectly good place to start. Yep. And then a harder book. And then a more difficult book. And by the time I was finished, uh, you know, uh, researching the Oppenheimer Alternative, I was reading peer-reviewed scientific journal technical papers about wow. the Manhattan Project, but I understood every word because I'd worked my way up to them. So uh, just be willing to embrace the fact that you don't know anything, but that your readers are going to expect by the time you write the book that you know everything, and you should. Expert. Yeah. But it's then true. you got to prune. You can't put everything that you've learned in the book. No. Uh, there was, I, I wish I knew, oh, I do know Wilma Meyer, I think was... Uh, who came up with this, who was the, um, uh, ran the writer's workshop on uh, CompuServe, a service from the very early days of uh, the public internet. Um, she ran the writer's workshop and she would call sections where writers have put everything they've learned into their book. This would be the, I have suffered for my art and now <laughs> you, the reader, are gonna suffer too, part of the book, right? <laughs> You, the, you the info dump. a thousand things and you cherry pick the ones that are most heartbreaking, yep. colorful, yep. interesting, and exciting out of the vast array of things that you know about a topic. Whenever I think about research, I know I probably couldn't write anything historical because I'd be that person going, look what I know, I suffered. Um, but it always <laughs> brings me back to the Iliad. And reading that and you you read it and you get to that chapter, the catalog of the ships, and it's like 49 pages long of just going, this person, son of this person, had this ship. Yes. And then they just keep going. And you're like, okay, I get it's a classic. I get, you know, there's yes. history and mythology. But as a reader, it's you just want to bang your head against the wall. It, yeah. <laughs> right, right. You know, you it's like that part. <laughs> The begats in the Bible, and I'll tell you, I'll come back to Dune as a as an example of world building here, because um, Frank Herbert's Dune, the most successful in terms of sales, the biggest selling science fiction novel in history, was rejected by every science fiction publisher. The book finally came out in 1965, and the publisher was a company called Chilton. Now, do either of you know who know Chilton? Well, Chilton is a huge publisher in one area, automotive repair manuals. Oh they God. published Dune. That was their first foray into fiction. And they made one change that made it from a novel that everybody rejected to becoming this breakout book that now we have our third 
uh, film version of. There was a sci-fi channel. A lot of people are scratching their head of what the second one was. That was the second <laughs> one. I want to know what the change and is. And what they did was there's this gigantic thing at the beginning called Terminology of the Imperium, which is a glossary of all these ah. made-up terms. And it runs for dozens of pages. And the editor at Chilton said, I'm going to make one change. This goes from the front of the book to the back to the back of the book. And we start diving into the story. And if people get lost by the terminology, let them flip to the back and, oh, yeah, remind themselves that a Bene Gesserit is a, uh, you know, a sorcerer uh, woman, blah, blah, blah. Don't make them digest all that up front. Have it where they can look it up if they need to or if they've forgotten. And that made all the difference. So, yeah, you know, um, Homer, um, we remember him very fondly, but that's not a part of, uh, of that, of the Iliad that we remember with great delight. Well, and it shows how the entertainment and literature changes over time, right? I mean, yeah. prologues used to be a huge thing. And now, you know, my editors say, like, no, it's like a paragraph or nothing unless yeah. it's really reading. I've been, I've published what, six novels? I've been allowed one once. Yeah. Um, right? Whereas, you know, I remember the books I read going up, growing up and they all had prologues that you, some that were great and some that you kind of muddled through. <laughs> Let's yeah. just find chapter one. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, the, the, the very simple thing is you got to start it somewhere where it's interesting if a prologue is just an info dump, just a whole bunch of history to set the stage, then it means you haven't really done your job. Your job is, whether it's science fiction, fantasy, or historical fiction, anything other than straightforward mimetic fiction, fiction that's imitative of the present day of real life, you have to skillfully weave all that stuff into the narrative instead of dumping it and saying, here's the history lesson, or here's the science lesson, or whatever. You weave it in so elegantly. That's the job. And it's a very tough job to do. A prologue, the reason they're frowned on is that so many writers do them as the easy way of yeah. giving the background information instead of doing the really hard work of elegantly peppering it as a, as a seasoning uh, that spices up the narrative as you go along. Anticipating what the reader has to know in advance of them knowing it, but giving it to them in a way that is so effortless, they haven't even been aware that they've learned it until they go, oh my God, of course he can't go left because everybody knows that the orcs always attack from that side. Naturally, he chose to go to the right, even though there's a cliff face there. Duh. But you didn't know that you needed to know that until that moment, and you weren't even aware that you'd picked it up until that moment and then you have a literal cliffhanger a literal cliffhanger Your character is turned to the cliff because things that the reader knows to be true without having been lectured about have motivated that only possible choice for your character as as a teacher i will verify nobody wants to be lectured to that's right nobody does and i just lectured here so <laughs> well, <laughs> one of my favorite far side cartoons is <laughs> but, but we're Billy absorbing it it's an yes. exciting lecture there are well, exciting I'm, lectures i'm fascinated the oh, thing Billy fared most of all was his father's lectures and there's his dad with the blackboard and <laughs> i just want to know how you took so you have all this information you're aware you have to sprinkle it in but you're also basing it off real events and real mm -hmm. but you're you're twisting it like, how did you pull that off? 
like what is the premises of the Oppenheimer alternative? Because yeah, sure. So what when is your take on it? Oppenheimer. <laughs> that was a very um, elegantly framed question. I got Oppenheimer say. <laughs> was a national hero. He was the scientific director of the effort that created an atomic bomb uh, that was used to end the war in the Pacific, World War II. Um, and he later lost his security clearance, which is amazing, right? This is, a you know, the guy who basically let the Allies win the Second World War. Um, and then a few years later, he is put on a McCarthyist trial for being a communist sympathizer. And they decide, yeah, you are, and you're not safe to be in charge of the nuclear or have access to the nuclear secrets of the country. When that happened in real life, Oppenheimer said, if a journalist were to dig deeply enough, he, he presumed a he at that time for a journalist, would discover that this is a much bigger story than just my security suspension. Also, at the same time, uh, Oppenheimer's second in command, a man named Deke Parsons, said, oh, my God, I've got to talk to Ike, Ike being President Eisenhower. This, the security hearing, is the worst mistake the United States could make. Unfortunately, uh, 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 Deke Parsons had a heart attack the next day and died before he talked to Eisenhower. But these are incredibly provocative statements that are a real part of the historical record. And nobody has ever written the story of what the heck it was that both Oppenheimer and his second-in-command were alluding to. What was this bigger story? So I wanted to find out what it was, and nobody knows, so I got to make it up. But it had to be consistent with everything we do know about Oppenheimer, about his personal history, about the security concerns surrounding him. And then because I'm a science fiction writer, it also had to be a science fictional kind of thing. So it's a science fiction alternate history that doesn't contradict what we know about Oppenheimer, but does fill in the blank spots that really are there and are very provocatively teased by Oppenheimer before he died in real life about what might have really happened. That's the Oppenheimer just, alternative. Yeah. I could just see you researching and all these ideas just percolating in your head going like, oh, here's a tidbit of information. I could take it this way. Oh, here's a different tidbit of information. I could take it this way. And then you just, once you're, let's call it done, that phase of your research, you now have all these opportunities to explore and make up. It would, like, I could just see all the light bulbs. It would be like fireworks going off in my brain. It is, you know, and I, again, ignorance. I knew everybody knows a little bit about Oppenheimer. You know, I mean, he's uh, obviously an important historical figure, but I wasn't looking for anything in particular. I just followed my nose. And when I when I came to that, those quotes I gave you, or another one of his, when he was asked fairly late in his life um, by a university student who was, you know, didn't really too young to remember World War II. So your atomic bomb was the first one ever exploded? And he goes, Yes. Well, in historical times, what is he referring to? Right? I mean, oh my God, that's a tidbit that you can, that's a dot that you can draw the connecting lines between and come up with a story to tell about. It's, um, it's a, it's like a tweak in that, you know, fantasy and sci fi, we often 
write about what if. What if there were dragons? What yes. if we lived on Mars? This is more like a what could. What could yeah, absolutely. Happen. What might have been or what could have. It had to be plausible. But and I guess the point I want to make to bring it all back to the writerly discussion of research is you're a detective when you're doing research. You don't know. All you know is that a crime is going to be committed. That crime is going to be your novel. And uh, what you want is you're doing research looking for things that, well, that's weird. That's strange. That's a little bit out of place. I can't make sense of that. Why did that person act that way? You're doing exactly what a detective is doing, looking for the things that, hey, wait a minute. Oh, what? That's interesting. Huh? How come? And those are the things that you're gathering, making notes about. I actually, I many writers have many different note-taking methods. I have a little digital recorder with me uh, where I'll say, make a little note. And I actually just feed this into voice transcription software so my notes are actually typed up for me. I'm too lazy right. to type them up myself at the end of the day. But, um, you know, these are fleeting little details. And anybody who reads mystery fiction knows that the detective who ultimately solves the crime hasn't picked up on the big, bloody, red-stained hands of the murderer who is still holding the knife. He's picking up on why did the murderer go to lunch wearing one set of clothes, come back having changed his shirt? Oh, he said he worked out at the gym. But, you know, the gyms are closed. It's COVID-19, right? It's a piecing together and following a trail. That's what you do as a researcher looking for... They're not clues, but they're tidbits that are going to right. make an enticing tale that ultimately, as you said, Jenna, holds together. It has to be internally consistent at the end, no matter what genre you're writing in. Yeah, I got to get a voice recorder because I got 10,000 post-its. And my husband's always like, can I throw this out? It just says red. I'm like, no, 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 yes. that's important. They say that word or like a word they say. And I'm like, that's very relevant. He doesn't that's right. It. Yeah. There are all kinds of technological ways you can do it. Some writers will use a, the service Evernote, you know, which will um, let you take pictures of your post-its and does OCR on your handwriting so that you can search for them. And, you know, all the post-its that mention bloody knife and you might have 25 of them and they all come up to and, and show you find them for you. But yeah, an organized system. The one system that isn't organized and doesn't have really fast retrieval is your noggin. So you have to have some external way of keeping track of your research data. I've gotten better at it as I go along. For I sure. Got we all do. Oh, practice yeah. makes perfect. Practice. Total practice. I remember starting off with the hand-drawn maps, except I can't draw, so I wrote the right. word tree five times. Right, 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 right. <laughs> tree, tree, but tree. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And whether you're waking up a fantasy land or... Or plotting out a murder mystery, right? You know, yeah. the readers will remember that you said that the dining room was on the left in chapter one. You better remember that it was on the left, too, in chapter 18. Or they'll be, you know, wait a minute. They're making a mental map. You've got to have a map that you refer to and make sure that you haven't screwed up. I love that this applies to all writers. Sure. All sure readers does. in that consistency. Um and, you know, and that's why sometimes beta readers are so important. Um, I, I mean, some of us get to write full time and some, a lot of us don't. And so, you know, you're working on projects and you have to take a break. And, you know, I've had beta readers point out like, um, that character died two chapters ago. Yes. I, I, yes. You, right. But this is some good advice for any writers that are listening, whether they want to write sci-fi or whether they want to write historical. And then a little insight for from the reader's perspective of what 
what goes on in the background of writing? I mean, some people do know, but a lot of people, they they don't always know what's going on behind the scenes in in writing. And there's a lot that goes behind the scenes in order to get a book out in order that that you're reading like the amount of time and hours and heartbreak and blood sweat and tears that goes into an actual book that you can pick up i think unless you've experienced it you've written one yourself or you know somebody who's written one we just assume hey somebody's going heavy at the keyboard for 20 30 40 hours and then bam you got a book and that's just not the case most of my writing is me staring off into space like, what are you doing? I'm like, exactly. And, and uh, the most important thing you mentioned, uh, your husband, Jenna, the most important thing is whoever you live with to train them to recognize that when you're just staring off into space, you're working. Don't yep. interrupt. There's a whole bunch going on in here. You're trying to connect the dots mentally or recall something or think of an ideal phrase. And when somebody says, oh, you know, it's uh Nice day, isn't it? Boom. All of that house of cards that you're building in your head comes tumbling down. So, yeah, it really is uh, the the part of it that's typing on the keyboard. You know, a good typist, and I'm not, but a good professional typist can type a, a page, a manuscript page, a minute. And book is 400 manuscript pages. So in less than six hours, a good typist can type a book's length worth of words. But you can't think of a pay if you do it a good page for many writers a good single page is a good day's work yep i'm gonna um add a little tidbit before we sum up because it just i need to express <laughs> my inner nerd but i do have a signal from my husband from when we first started dating and living with each other because he didn't know if i was doing schoolwork if i'm playing right. solitaire so i have a tiara that's the signal if the tiara is on mm, that means that she's staring into space for a reason very yeah. good very mm-hmm. good or if My I just signal is that if I've started drooling, I've fallen asleep. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Otherwise, don't disturb Breathing me. gets heavy. I am That's unconscious. Right. <laughs> uh, this has been thrilling. I felt like the literary vibes in uh, the Battle of Hastings was in 1066. I don't know why I know that, but I yes, I that. yes, that's right. Uh, <laughs> but so the half hour just flew by on us, and and that's fortunate but unfortunate because we have to say goodbye. Um, but just before we go, um, can you tell us where um, our viewers and listeners can find your latest book, all your books, but your latest books and, and where they can find more information on all your writing? Sure. Uh, the Oppenheimer Alternative is traditionally published, so it should be in better bookstores uh, and Amazon and so forth. But it's also available in ebook format and audiobook format. Um, uh, my website, I am a science fiction writer. My website is S fwriter.com s is in science f is in fiction writer.com and i'm on various social media as my full name robert j sawyer with no punctuation so at robert j sawyer on twitter robert j sawyer on patreon robert j sawyer on facebook beautiful wonderful well thank you very much for being on our show it was a privilege and an honor just before we go, I'd love to say a thank you uh, to our show sponsors, Creative Edge Publicity and the Writers Corner Network, and above all else, all our viewers and all our listeners. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. <laughs>